everybody, it's your boy, the Based Man of Letters, back with another episode of This Week in Women. I'm joined by a woman, but one of the good ones. That's right, it's the Modest Milkmaid. Hi guys, I'm the Modest Milkmaid. I'm really passionate about promoting good women behavior. Women do good things. Have you found a husband yet? No. Why? <laughs> um... Because I deleted my OnlyFans, and ever since then I've been getting less male attention. <laughs> I guess they just hate to see a woman find the Lord. That's right, but every week on this show, I like to bring you a slice of what the woke elites are up to. What are the feminazis cooking up this week? Well, this week I've got a real doozy for you folks. We are going to be live reacting to the cringe event of the century, the wokest podcast in historiography. It's pretty woke. That's right, Modest Milkmaid. <laughs> we found this podcast and you would not believe what these two clowns are talking about. They're trying to rewrite the historical narrative and claim that there was such thing as feminism in the Middle Ages. Everyone knows that feminism was invented in 2015 when Hillary Clinton declared her intention to run for president. Anyway, guys, let's jump right into it. We're going to hit play. And don't forget to smash that like and subscribe button. Let's go. The feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. Weird Medieval Guys, the podcast, everybody. I'm Olivia, this is Aaron. And this week we're doing an episode about feminism. That's right, we're going to be elevating the voices of women. Absolutely, Olivia. And this week we're going to talk about uh, some of your favorite historical women, and I'm going to be sharing my thoughts about what feminism really means. <laughs> so our goal for this episode is to talk a little bit about women in the Middle Ages, the position of women in society and how things might have changed, and if they did, who contributed to those changes for women in society. I'm sure all those changes were good. <laughs> well, I think we have a bit of housekeeping to do before we really get into it. Um, Spoken like a true woman. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm sorry. This is gonna. This is really bad. No, no, it's funny. It's funny because we're both woke. People like those kinds of jokes. If you, if they, if they already know you're woke, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously, if we talk about something like feminism in the Middle Ages, it's pretty clear that the types of behavior and thoughts and ideas that we'll be discussing aren't really going to resemble anything that we describe. So stop fucking typing, okay? Exactly. I, you are, you, you, I know what you're doing. I can see you. Stop. Look around. I'm behind you with a baseball bat. <laughs> stop typing. I know what an anachronism is. I'm not a complete moron. That being said, I still think it's important to touch a bit on what we mean when we say feminism broadly as a society to give us a little bit of a reference point for what we're talking about in the Middle Ages. That's right, Olivia, because otherwise it's just going to descend into anyone who says woman good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, I actually think that women are 
75% as good as men instead of 50% as good as men. That's fe that's what feminism's about, right? Well, that's what people don't understand about the pay gap, is it reflects, like, how good women are comparison <laughs> to men. <laughs> you are you you are treading some dangerous ground. Women get a little bit better every year, which is why the pay gap is closing. <laughs> so the quote unquote feminist movement, as in you know, capital F, capital M, mm -hmm. is generally acknowledged to have sort of initiated in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Conference, which is sort of the first women's rights conference that was organized, and in which sort of the the securing access to the vote for women was kind of agreed upon as the sort of the, the, the primary political objective. But I think that, that's in, that it's important to note that that's not the first time that anyone had ever thought about gender or thought about or presented any sort of critiques of, um, of women's traditional, quote unquote, traditional role in, uh, in society. I think what we can certainly say did not exist in the Middle Ages um, was movements whose specific purpose was to emancipate women. Um, I mean, the vote itself, of course, was not a concept that existed or had any no. weight in the Middle Ages. And so things like universal suffrage couldn't be campaigned for. And I think in general, um, the self-empowerment of women to demand changes in society in a way that wasn't apologetic or oriented towards appeasing men is something that you would be very hard-pressed to find in the Middle Ages. Wait, why wouldn't it be about appeasing men? <laughs> well, I think that, yeah, I think the, the, the important point is that we shouldn't go looking back through history with an ex trying to find things that are recognizable as sort of specific feminist demands or even feminist critiques. Now I'm going to do something sacrilegious, which is sort of suggest a working definition of feminism that's a bit less anachronistic than, th than that. I would suggest, right, if we're going to go trying to find the sort of medieval analog to medieval feminism, that women are a group in society that is sort of a relevant, a relevant frame of reference for analysis, number mm -hmm. one. Number two, women are in their essence, whether that's their soul or whatever, the equal of men, and that therefore they should be treated the same under the law. And number three, they are deprived of those rights on the basis of their gender by structural social forces. Yes. There we go. A man has finally defined feminism after <laughs> 150 years. I'm glad we did it. No, I think that's a, I think that's a very reasonable sort of... Those are very reasonable traits to look for in the Middle Ages, and as we're about to discover as we embark on our journey through medieval femininity and womanhood, it will not be easy to find people who meet even one of those criteria, um, let alone all three, but there are a few. But yeah, it's absolutely the case that we're not looking for the precursor of the modern feminist movement in the Middle Ages, and it would be very hard to draw an unbroken line between different people and ideas and schools of thought starting in the Middle Ages and arriving at modern feminism. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I think it is still... We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think it is still very interesting to look at ways in which people, both women and men, did speak out on behalf of women 
and what the sort of circumstances and motivations were for doing that, as well as what the outcomes were. How were these people received by society? So feminism, what we've, what we've, the, the, the working definition that we have for this podcast of feminism is essentially, it is a, it is a, it is a critique, right? So first we, I think we have to understand what people would be critiquing. What are, what are these sort of hegemonic social norms about gender in medieval society? Um, I think in order to discuss that, I'm going to, um, I'm going to hand the mic over briefly to Chris Martin and say, take me back to the start. <laughs> yeah. Well, the very first woman of them all. Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> Not Madonna. Eve. Although we will come back to the Madonna. <laughs> um, but yeah, Eve, the first gal. The first gal. And what a time she had as the first gal. Because Eve really, really, really messes up. Right at the start. Yeah, well, she's the reason why we're all in this whole mess in the first place. I could have been chilling in a garden, naked, eating grapes. Naming the animals. I mean, that would be a great job. That one's called a capybara. <laughs> no, no, no. A carpincho. Yes. <laughs> Who's this? I pinch your car. <laughs> is, that the, is this the serpent? And drive it off a cliff. <laughs> Is the serpent Italian? <laughs> Maybe. That wasn't in Paradise Lost. <laughs> yeah, so Eve, and more specifically, the temptation of Eve by the serpent into eating the forbidden fruit of knowledge was what led people to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. And so Eve was considered by medieval Christians, like many Christians today, to be the first sinner. Not only that, but the sin that Eve committed the original sin as it's known, Eve incurred a sort of spiritual debt that, you know, in the medieval Christian mind, everyone is still working to this day to pay off. We are born sinners because of what this one woman did. Which I think is very unfair, right? Because, like, even in the most critical sort of presentations of Eve, she's kind of just gullible. Yeah, she's, she's guileless. Like, there's obviously a more sort of Freudian interpretation of that story where it's like oh she was tempted by a serpent was she mm -hmm. but it's like uh, if i if i've like met two people ever in my life and i meet a i've got and nobody's ever lied to me ever <laughs> and i meet a snake is like you should eat this apple it would be fine it'll all be fine <laughs> i don't have a frame of reference to be like that doesn't seem true but it's interesting in medieval art if you look at medieval art of the temptation of eve you'll always notice that the serpent is drawn with a woman's face. Oh, right. Often a face resembling that of Eve, or identical, even. And so... Eve and... <laughs> um, terrible. <laughs> and so this is a... You know, this is an evil that was attributed to An Eve. evil? <sighs> I'm gonna have to start <laughs> watching what I say. So... This so Eve was you know, very was was very much given responsibility for committing this quote unquote sin, and it's interesting that you mention representations of her as being representations of her as being gullible, because I think it might be useful to talk uh, to get a bit into what 
women were perceived to be like in the Middle Ages, because there was a very clear, distinct notion of female nature as different to male nature. Listen, here's the thing about women you gotta understand. Women are two things. They're horny and stupid. Yes, well, I think I think that's pretty much put the nail on the head, because the and idea... And women, they also love shopping. And they love... Women, women do be, be shopping. shopping. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because the, um, the idea of women as, you know, given into... Easily giving into temptation, and easily, easily tricked and misled, and is being sort of morally infirm. But also having voracious, sinister appetites. Yes, that's that's very much something that was embedded in the medieval mindset. And I think you see a lot of Eve reflected in how women in general were perceived in the Middle Ages, as well as quite a bit, I will say, of pre-Christian philosophy, too. Because the Christians didn't invent sexism. Do not Google what Aristotle thought about women. <laughs> it was bad. Yep. I mean, the Greeks had Pandora, who I think, you know, you could, you could see as a sort of proto-Eve. Mm. And the Christians inherited a lot of Greek philosophical and medical traditions. And, and venerated them. There was plenty to say about women in those. Um, and so the medieval concept of body and mind were very strongly linked, weren't they? Yeah. There's some, someone who, who was, you know, in good physical health and pleasant to look at and conformed to standards for what a person it should look like was probably someone who was moral and morally upright and conversely that the idea of physical unattractiveness and you know evil went hand in hand as well and so there was the idea that there was a biological reason why women were the way that they were kind of morally inferior um that comes back to sort of humor and humoral theory because there are all these ideas that men in their physical nature are kind of like hard and dry and forceful. And women and their physical nature are soft and moist, um, which is kind of a, yeah. A, That's a, unpleasant. A recurring theme and, you know, malleable. And that I love my women like I like my cakes. <laughs> moist. Exactly. I'm so sorry. And the idea that these were the physical natures of the two genders... Um, basically led to the idea that those were also the spiritual natures, that women were mentally and Spiritually morally moist. moist. <laughs> women just have those soggy souls. <laughs> you squeeze a woman's soul and it just... <laughs> so that's what Mary Berry was talking about. Exactly, when she said soggy bottoms. Yeah, this is a very feminine cake. <laughs> <laughs> but that is to say that that you know, thing that, that there was a medicalized, philosophized... Um, notion of, of female nature and that this was what phys um, physicians and doctors and scholars thought of women and so this was what the authority this is what the authority said so does that mean that medieval Christians thought that every woman was evil. Not necessarily. As you might be aware, there are plenty of female saints, for instance, in the Catholic Church, and many of the earliest examples of Christian women who are treated by society as being admirable are saints. But these women were seen as being particularly 
admirable because they had overcome that innate female nature, most often that they had overcome the innate female sexual appetite and um, by maintaining their virginity. Yeah, I mean, I would sort of, I would slightly soften that to say that I think it's worth, it's, it's worth reflecting on the fact that women were given, were assigned the ability to be saints at all as significant. Because I think we, we kind of brush past that. Because sainthood and unification with God is the highest state that a sort of human being can achieve in medieval Christianity. And so there is, there is an argument to be made, and I think it's, you know, it's a little bit true, maybe a little bit not true. The idea that women were at the very least in the medieval mindset part of the sort of overall spiritual journey of mankind, something that other forms of misogyny maybe don't credit them with. Yes, I do think that's definitely a, a fair thing to say. But that's not to say that they were woke. <laughs> this is this is the this is the lowest possible bar, and they are barely barely clearing it. Yeah, because the way that women can achieve spiritual completion is, if not on paper, then certainly in practice, very different to what men are expected to do. So with women, there is a massive emphasis on virginity and purity and chastity and modesty and submissiveness and deference and suffering, um, suffering through it, and just in general on abstention. And it's quite an interesting thing. There's also many records of female of women in the Catholic Church um, who lived a cloistered life and who lived as um, lives of seclusion and who led these really ascetic lifestyles that often involved abstaining from things like food and drinking. And there were many Catholic women who even starved themselves to death in the name of God with this um, I, with the idea being that it was important for them to exercise, you know, their willpower and their and their morals by abstaining from any pleasure of the flesh. And of course, you see things like this in men, but I think you do see it mm -hmm. as a particularly feminine way of religious expression. Yeah, well, I think that I think the important thing to note is that for men, there are other ways. Yes. Of becoming closer to God. But there but and, and there are lots and lots of men who do take that sort of very ascetic lifestyle. And I mean, we have a, we have a, an article on the Substack about the sort of the origin of the origins of monasticism mm -hmm. in, in the Middle East, um, talking about this idea of mortification and, and asceticism and how women are kind of part of that from the very, very beginning. But the important thing is that like, you can become a saint if you're like a really good king, which is not something that happens very often for, for women. And I think that, suffering and endurance is sort of the is is the path to holiness for women in this period absolutely i mean it's important to note that obviously um eve is not the only woman in the bible and there's another incredibly important woman in medieval <laughs> Christianity who we've only sort of very briefly acknowledged up to this point, who is Mary. 
Now, Mary in the New Testament, if you go back, is not actually a very important character. She gets 16 mentions in the entirety of the Bible, and she gets, I think, 32 in the Quran. Like, she's, she's a, she is very much a supporting character. Now, fast forward 400 years to um, when, when Christianity has become established in the, in the 5th century in the Roman Empire. All, like, once, it, once, the, once Christianity becomes a state orthodoxy, you need to figure out what that state orthodoxy is. And so there are this proliferation in the sort of late Roman, early medieval period of these religious, these ecumenical councils that are sort of set up to answer important theological questions. And one of these is the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which was set up to answer one very important question. Is Jesus God or man or something in between? Now, at the end of the council, what they decide is he is both fully man and fully divine. One of the interesting uh, consequences of that is that suddenly Mary becomes a much more important um, important figure in Christianity because she is because if Jesus is both God and man, then that means that she is not only the mother of Christ, the man, but the mother of God. And so, after the Council of Chalcedon, um, the cult of Mary becomes an incredibly important part of um of medieval christianity for men and for women i mean in 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 medieval christianity she is kind of becomes this almost and this is profoundly heretical for me to say but i'm just going to say it this sort of demigod like figure who is who is assumed to have the ability to intercede and you know inter you know and to and to affect the physical world if you kind of appeal to her and that's why mary is one of the most kind of commonly represent especially in the east as well in, in orthodox christianity she's absolutely central the cult of mary now mary anyway that's a big deal because mary's that makes mary the most important mortal in all of christianity mm -hmm. um and so that kind of does i think in a strange kind of way serve as a counterbalance to eve because yes women are responsible for original sin but also a woman produced the redeemer who was going to who was going to sort of wash away that original sin that, that there is a place therefore for women in medieval christianity and for the, in the medieval christian ethos but it is an incredibly limited role because she is only important in relation to christ so in relation to a man and in her role as a mother so the example that she is able to set to women is both incredibly important, but also incredibly limited. And I think you can see when, in cases when women do have power and those women are represented in a positive light, Mary is absolutely the, the, the model that is used to sort of, to, to, to write about those women, that they are sort of, you know, a good queen is a sort of is a is a bearer of new life and a sort of a protector, but anything else is kind of weird and sinister, in the way you know in in kind of the way that that, that Theodora was. Yes, absolutely. Theodora of Justinian and Theodora yeah. fame. Yes, I think that's a very fair assessment, and 
it's it's you know hard to produce a coherent notion of what exactly the you know church good or bad for women um, <laughs> and it's also absolutely the case that broadly in the middle ages women were not empowered by the church necessarily um to become spiritual leaders so i think yeah you touched on that very well that women weren't necessarily allowed to be at the at the forefront of movements although there were there were certainly some women who bucked that trend i mean that's the that's the history of of gender i think is you every sentence has to end with but there were some women who and some men so actually this is i have a, a slightly interesting tangent um that i, I love to slightly on. interesting tangent yeah so have you heard of a small sect of christianity called the waldensians I've heard the name, but I know nothing about them. So this is a really interesting movement I read about that was founded in the 12th century by... Are they about ensuring sort of structural integrity? No. Waldense? No. This is a 12th century... <laughs> a 12th century movement onwards. And it's a really interesting christian movement um mm -hmm. so these guys made it like a couple decades before the pope sort of fully noticed them and started <laughs> sending people to torture them to death but this was basically <laughs> this is like the kind of christian that your family would have been in the middle ages oh cool um so this was a s very uh, unstructured type of christianity that mm -hmm. was practiced wherein there actually weren't there weren't formal church leaders there weren't there wasn't formal mass so mass was conducted by you know people lay people and common people were expected to engage with scripture on their own and even be able to preach it to each other to this end the waldensians also promoted um vernacular translations of the bible when was this they didn't believe in saints um they didn't really like the hierarchy and the centralized structure of the church they thought there was a lot of um corruption involved there um sounding a little bit familiar yeah right? when is when is this <laughs> this is in the 12th century of course it is yeah that tracks <laughs> and they were also um you know big believers in asceticism and not having sort of elaborate churches and not spending you know excessive money and resources on the church so super interesting because they have been described as proto-protestants mm. and even though the catholic church basically tried to stamp them out for 300 years they actually held on underground yeah and then when the protestant reformation happened they kind of just popped up again and like <laughs> <laughs> we're back baby <laughs> made their presence known at which point they were kind of just absorbed into the protestant movement <laughs> which i think is so cool that's um, charming but they also one of the things that was believed by the waldensians was it was that women were equal to men in their ability to engage with and preach scripture and i think that's pretty cool um but yeah to, to circle back anyways out of that tangent um it's definitely Definitely true that women were mostly defined in relation to, I would say, other things, mm -hmm. in particular men in the Middle yeah. Ages. So even stepping outside the church, women were expected to basically be passed from their families to their husbands. Here you go, ever. Exactly. And if you lose your husband, you'd best try to remarry and to be a woman who existed outside of that social structure. 
was not always a great place to be, whether you were an unmarried woman or a widow or a single, God forbid, a single mother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, dear. Then you were not empowered uh, whatsoever to participate in society and be perceived as a valuable member. Yeah, as as human, essentially. Uh, With one exception, I will say, which was women who led a cloistered lifestyle. Right. So I think it's, it's interesting that by becoming nuns, and of course for swearing some pleasures, uh, at least on paper, women were able to sort of escape some social structures. Although I think it's very mm. tempting. It's they ve- were still, they were literally marrying Jesus. Well, it's, I think it's very tempting and certainly erroneous um, to go, oh, that means that, you know, nuns were girl bosses who could do whatever they wanted. It's very easy to imagine nuns as a sort of kick-ass lesbian polycule yeah is not that (laughs) i think most people that have been to religious all-girls schools (laughs) would definitely not agree that it's yeah that dairy girls it ain't yes exactly and so so women were able for instance to pursue an education if they became nuns which i do think is significant because there wasn't another mainstream way for women to do that in the middle ages that being said, yeah, it was it was a very restrictive lifestyle for women. Women could certainly be turned out of their convents if they were suspected of bad behavior. And um, and there were certainly examples of nuns also being imprisoned and tortured and even put to death for what was perceived as sinful behavior. So there are quite it wasn't a, few. a cheat code yeah but i but i do think you know um it's it's hard to kind of have a, a moderated view of this but there were most of the first i would say significant women that we see in the middle ages who achieved high levels of education high levels of renown something close to what we might call self empowerment were often either monarchs or women who were associated with the church. Um, Mm. I say this mostly because I think people will yell at me if I don't bring up Hildegard von Bingen, everyone's favorite new age, um, spiritual mystic lady saint. Groovy baby. (laughs) And she was also a a 12th century woman by and large. And yeah, she, she does have an image of being kind of like a medieval, I don't know, Yoko Ono or something. <laughs> people really do. People really do perceive her that way. And it, it to to bring in my feelings to this because I'm a woman and this is an episode about women. So You're it's a also woman. An episode about me. Wait a minute. It drives me nuts, man. Anyways, Hildegard was a woman who, from a very young age, experienced visions, which is hard to know exactly what that meant. If it was like a sort of schizophrenia or migraines. Um, but she would or fall just weird into, dreams. or maybe it really was God. Um, but either way, she mm-hmm. would she would fall into fits and receive apparently visions from God, and this led her parents to stick her in a nunnery, possibly also because she was like the eleventh of twelve children or something, and it was getting a bit much. But anyways, Hildegard was a woman who achieved, I would say, incredible renown for a woman of her day. 
So by for, um, by her 40s or 50s, she was the prioress of her own little group of nuns, and she advocated for them. She managed to establish um, sort of an independent enclave of nuns. She publicly preached. So she actually went on tours, um, giving public sort of sermons, which was quite remarkable for a woman. Coming to a city near you. Exactly. Women. And she became very well established as a religious leader. She corresponded with popes and kings and all sorts of important people of her day. But did she have, can I just ask, if she's the mid, if she's the middle ages, um, Yoko Ono, Mm -hmm. did she have a John Lennon? On the scene. She did have... Um, or was her John Lennon just Jesus? She did have another nun that she that she hung out with a lot. Oh, right. They were roommates. Yeah, well... Joanne. Uh, yeah, I need to push... Joanne Lennon. I need to push back on that as well, because that's <laughs> something people love to insinuate, despite the fact that there's basically no evidence to suggest that they were in lesbians. Um, <laughs> they were Lebanese. <laughs> no, Olivia, any time that two people of the same gender... Uh, spend any amount of time together, and if anybody notes it, they're gay. I just think that if two women are in a theater company together, they have to be thespians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's much better than the direction I was going now, which was a busting out the Beatles one. Elder God, we've got to illuminate these manuscripts. <laughs> But she did all sorts of really interesting things. And she's a very quirky, idiosyncratic woman who loved things like natural medicine. She did actually illuminate many of her own manuscripts uh, with many... Is that your John Lennon? No, that's me lowering my glasses to sort of look at you. Why? Do you over-identify with this woman? No, I actually really? don't. I actually don't. We're going to get into why. <sighs> um, she illuminated her own the manuscripts. Um, yeah, so she was involved in all sorts of really interesting things. She composed music. She's actually a very significant composer of church music. She was interested in natural medicine. She created her own language called the Lingua Ignota, not the band, um, but a made-up language by Hildegard von Bingen, from which the band gets its name. And at that, I think, seeing all of the things that she's done, she often does get elevated to feminist status Hmm. today. And she's one of the most well-known women from the Middle Ages today. And I think it's really interesting that people ascribe this feminist tendency to her because she didn't have much to say about women or gender or femininity um and she was of course as a staunch christian most of what she said about women was about sex and more specifically about the importance of chastity and purity and traditional feminine values so there was no there was no i would say if we return to our original definition of feminism in the Mm. Middle Ages that we're working with, um, there wasn't any sort of treatment of of women's issues for the most part. There's a a difference that gets alighted when you're thinking about historical figures who kind of push against the societies that they live in between somebody who is an inspiration in retrospect because of what they were able to achieve and somebody who actually presents a, a critique like, she is a feminist icon because she showed what women were capable of because she was intelligent and articulate and successful. But she didn't herself, as far as we know, present any kind of structural critique of gender or anything like that. 
It's the difference between, I think, being appropriated by feminism or really by any sort of political movement as, an, as a sort of evidence in an argument, as evidence in a critique of these sort of misogynistic ideas about women, whilst not necessarily holding those views yourself. I think the, the female mystic is a really troublesome figure to look to for feminist inspiration. I think that the female mystic, in terms of being a woman who experiences visions from God and who probably, you know, leads a, a lifestyle that's unconventional, it's, it's really easy for women to kind of turn it into a feminist thing. Because I think ultimately they're women who are mentally ill and it's really mm. easy to romanticize them while at the same time writing off what their actual convictions were, their Christian convictions about sex and morals and mm. society by kind of wrapping it all up with this mental illness and this kind of spiritual quality, despite the fact that that's what gives them their appeal in the first place. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, people are interested in these women as objects, as, as you know, kind of crazy, irra you know, crazy, crazy and irrational women. And I think it comes back to that Ursula K. Le Guin quote about women being at the roots and men being above, above the soil in the sunlight, mm. that people like this idea of it's women primal. having primal innate knowledge. But people are less interested in women with more conventional modes of self-expression. And if you don't think that's not an issue uh, these days, <laughs> I've got two words for you. Yeah. Girl math. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, or That's kind of a brief visit to Hildegard. And I think you can make a similar argument about a lot of other female saints, that they were aestheticized and that they were... There are Im there, there, there's an image of them, but it's an image that's very far divorced both from who they were as people and from what actual women are like. <laughs> really strikes me, especially earlier on in the Middle Ages, is that despite the fact that there were conceptions of female nature and some scholarly discussion of women, women weren't all that interesting to scholars and weren't all too central in the early and even high Middle Ages um, to discussion and to philosophy. You don't get many polemics about, like, women are bad. No, no, you don't get many, many pieces at all, um, apart from some medical texts that, you know, tell you to stick questionable things up your hoo-ha. What do they got down there? <laughs> Who even knows? Exactly. <laughs> it's weird and scary to me. Yeah, exactly. Hysteria is when uterus. Um, but that being said, later on in the Middle Ages, we do have a few pieces that were written about women. And of course, despite the fact that women weren't very central to medieval writing and philosophy, women nevertheless did consume that philosophy and writing. Yeah, I mean, there was a, in the Middle Ages, there was a class of literate women, mostly, you know, from the elite, obviously. Um, and they were, a, they, they consumed the culture of the time. I mean, they sort of formed their own, I mean, in many cases, they would basically like form sort of book groups and communities of communities of literacy where they would like discuss the, you know, classical texts and the, and the, and the, the great authors of the day. 
and that was, and so they were engaged in culture, but they weren't necessarily central in producing those texts. So it was usually still men who were writing it, even if women were, women were reading, women were consuming what they wrote, and their taste in their tastes influenced the culture, the textual culture, of uh, of their time was also. There's a great example of the hermit Richard Roll, who was in earlier in his career. Um, was sort of fanatical in his use of Latin and never writing in uh, in vernacular, uh, who then later, after sort of have, having words with his female friends, who were like, this actually sucks. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, hate yeah. reading Latin. He switched, to, he switched to writing in vernacular English. But there's, I think, on, on a more sort of profound level, there are sort of examples, I think, of men who when writing about women in this period who present a bit more of a nuanced like presentation of 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 women and of femininity i mean we've talked about one of them already chaucer chaucer absolutely i mean the wife of bath is the sort of is not a feminist story in the way that we're kind of using the term but at least presents a different kind of woman yes. and doesn't i think judge her in a, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Another um, sort of slightly surprising case of what you might say is like a more sort of critical interpretation of gender is the work of Geoffrey of Monmouth. Yes, yeah, so he was he was a he was a scholar who lived um, in the Welsh marches in the uh, in the 11th and 12th centuries and he is most famous for a couple of works, first of all, he helped to popularize, in many cases, set down some of the foundational Arthurian myths. But he also writes a book uh, called The History of the Kings of Britain, which is a history of the sort of pre-Anglo-Saxon Celtic monarchs of, um, of the island of Britain. The important thing to note about the history of the kings of Britain is that it is, whilst it was accepted as historical at the time that it was written, it is now accepted to be pretty much entirely fictional. <laughs> he just made stuff up, which is why it's incredibly interesting that he, when he was making stuff up, he wrote, he made some interesting stuff up about women. So there are two female kings, not queens, but female kings in uh, Jeffrey's book, and neither of them really fit the kind of Mary archetype. So you have... So they're, they're Cordelia and Marcia, and they're both sort of portrayed as noble women who rule over times of peace and who are sort of preceded and followed by much less competent sort of voracious men who are ruled by their appetites. And in many ways, the, the kind of power that they exercise is very contradictory to the, the, the these ideas about femininity that we've kind of been talking about so um Mar so Marcia for example is a great lawgiver who sets out who sets out this like the, the the legal code essentially of the Britons which is not a field that women are associated with at all and Cordelia is you know is maybe 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 a little bit more of a sort of conventional medieval woman in that she sort of doesn't end up sort of meeting a horrible fate because she is deposed after five years by her awful nephews. And, but she, but she's such a dedicated public servant that she's heartbroken and ends up killing herself. Now, these are women who, aside from their gender, could be any kind of, could be kind of any king. 
I think. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, so the important thing to remember when you're thinking about the history of the Kings of Britain as a book which comments on gender is that is two things about historiography in the Middle Ages, which number one, uh, this book is presented as a historical text. And number two, the purpose of medieval historiography is moral instruction. It is an educate. It is an education about how you are supposed to behave, and so if women are presented positively in the history of of British kingship, and are active participants in that, not in the sort of in following the sort of these two tracks that we've been talking about of like Eve versus Mary. That's very interesting. Absolutely. So I, what I think what I think is. What we, what we should take away from this is that these ideas about gender are hegemonic, but that doesn't mean that everybody is completely bought into them and that there isn't countercultural presentations and revisionist presentations of women in medieval culture. Definitely. Still not feminism, just to be <laughs> completely clear, but interesting. Definitely. And I think to return to the idea of moral instruction, that's also a very interesting component of medieval writings on women, because another famous early text about women um, is the writings of Boccaccio, who famously wrote a <sighs> book that was called something like, you know, on the lives of fabulous women or something like that. On the lives of bad bitches. <laughs> basically, yeah. Yeah, it's basically just like a women fan cam. Well, no, it... no, it's not. It's not. It's um, not really. I was mostly riffing. So it's it's a list of women from pagan and Christian history who Boccaccio perceives as admirable. But most importantly, it's a model of behavior for women, and it's very, very preachy, and it's uh, very clear that it's geared at what Boccaccio perceives to be his issues with women. I mean, it's not only that, but I would say that also he presents the women who are bad bitches, who, I, who he respects as the exception. Yes. So he has a brilliant quote in it where he says... What can we think, except it was an error of nature to give a, a female sex to a body which had been endowed by God with a magnificent virile spirit? <laughs> which is basically how I think about you. <laughs> oh, if I was a man, I'd be unstoppable. Because I would be, like, fight I'd be starting fist fights and stuff. I'm, I'm going to be real with you, Olivia. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, you would be an incredibly irritating indie boy who I would have grudging respect yeah, for. Yeah, definitely. I think, though, that it's a really important point to note when we talk about, like, these kinds of, these kinds of ideas about, like, positive um, representations of womanhood, whether they're the sort of slightly malevolent version that Boccaccio has or the kind of more interesting, uh, less prescriptive ideas that uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth is kind of portraying that these are still kind of depoliticized ideas. These are, these, these are cultural critiques or contributions to the culture that are not necessarily connected to advocating for changes in the status of women. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Which if you remember is one of the key kind of, key kind of uh, axioms that we're using to define feminist. Yes, yes, I think that's a really good point and really important to remember about basically everything we've we've talked about so far. 
and that there's been very little to challenge um, ideas of fundamental differences and even fundamental inferiorities in female nature compared to male nature. So, and also I think, yeah, I think the idea that notions like a female king or a woman preaching, these were very much tied into the idea of women doing these things as being a novelty. Um, and yeah, it was, um, and that women, women often in order to be taken seriously in any sense really had to undermine sort of their own authority and their own abilities just to be perceived as being worth, you know, listening to. Well, in it's the like, Ages. it's like, it's not medieval, but it's like the, the famous Elizabeth the first quote. Like, I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman. Yes. Like, to to make the point that I'm good at governing, she has to say, first of all, but I suck. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Never in danger, but nobody we've talked about thus far has really met the le- the sort of criteria of feminist that we've been working on. Because nobody's issuing a sort of political critique. Until somebody does. My, my sun, my moon, my stars. <laughs> the first thing I think about in the morning and the last thing I think about before going to sleep. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about Christine de Pizan, who, as Aaron and many people in my life know, I'm obsessed with. I think she is... One of the most fascinating people ever to have lived. She's your Constantinople. Yes. And the fact that we won't ever be able to know more about her, the fact that I won't ever be able to hold a conversation with this woman is utterly tragic because she is just, she's incredible. She's interesting. She's contradictory. And we should probably cut to the chase and explain why because she does arguably a lot of things for the first time or at least in a more visible way than anyone before in a way that's led her to be by some people considered the world's first feminist (laughs) here we go a bit more about christine she's literally opening up a book of notes (laughs) about christine de pizan yeah my weird medieval guys book um yes so just a bit of background about christine de pizan she is born in venice in 1364 to a noble family um her father is i believe a court astrologer and she moves he also works for the for the general council of venice as well so the the city council basically yes she he does um until he is given a job offer from the king of france at which point when christine is around four years old her family moves to france where she will spend most of the rest of her life now i would like to i would like to note that by the way this means that christine will spend her formative years proximate to but not able to access political power. What? Yes, but what she will be able to access is an absolute wealth of knowledge and information. Her father, who's, of course, an educated man, educates Christine as well, so she's very literate. She is educated, presumably by her father, in classical um, st- studies. Um, she is Latinate. She probably has a little bit of Greek knowledge as well. And she is a voracious reader. 
so in Paris is one of the largest libraries in the world at the time. And from a young age, Christine is in there absolutely devouring those books. Yeah, I mean, Paris was one of the centers of the first universities. So it was always, it was from a very early stage, a center of learning. We know that Christine from a young age was a curious girl who was interested in knowledge, but by the age of 15, she is already married to a man named Etienne de Castel, who is a middle, a middle class guy. It's a pretty respectable marriage and by all accounts, probably a love match. Everything that Christine writes about him is uh, indicates that they were in love and had a very happy marriage. And so Christine's, the first part of Christine's life until the age of 25 is spent as a wife and a mother and not much more that we know of, although she is already quite educated. So everything changes at the age of 25 when Christine- Fucking tell me about it. Yeah, in 1389. So within a year, Christine's husband and her father die. Not and ideal. Yes, uh, certainly not. Within a year of each other. And so these are probably the two most important people to Christine, her beloved and the person who educated her and gave her her love of knowledge. And after that, Christine is on her own. She has, I think, three kids and a mother to support, um, though no means of doing so. And she does not have a great time of things. So... We know from some of her later writings, she was embroiled in several court cases trying to claim um, her husband's estate and trying to get what was rightfully hers from the system. And she clearly struggled to make ends meet during that time and to be given what was rightfully hers. And I think this places her in a very kind of unusual position for a, for a woman in this period, somebody who is both highly educated, but also very, very, very precarious. Like most of the women who would have been access, able to access the kind of education that she had would have been from more established aristocratic families and would not have had to necessarily worry about, you know, being out of work. Yes. She, you know, she was, and this is an incredibly important point to know, she was employed yeah <laughs> she was not somebody who got her money from the land and so the idea the the prospect of if the system that she was kind of pushing against didn't side with her that she would be destitute was yes. absolutely a possibility especially because she does have some connections her family is established um in the french royal court but the French royal court is not in the most stable place either at the moment. And there are threats of civil war. There are nobles and monarchs who are fighting each other. And so basically her whole world is upended. I think around the same time, her father's patron, um, I forget which monarch that was, unfortunately, also dies. And so... Charles the... <laughs> Sorry, my voice just cracked. That's okay. It's not that important. That. Keep talking. Um, right. So it's around the age of 29, four years after the deaths of her husband and father, that Christine's first writings appear. So in order to provide for herself and her family, she starts writing poetry. 
although this wasn't necessarily unprecedented for a woman, selling her work commercially absolutely was. I don't know if there Charles are... V, get <laughs> fucked. Um, I don't know if there are any other examples of women doing this before Christine. Well, there would there would have been, but we might not necessarily know about it. Yes, exactly. And so interestingly as well, some of her first poems that she's writing are kind of just courtly love poems. They're pretty conventional and they're more or less what would be expected. They're kind of like the poetry versions of pop songs. <laughs> but interestingly, as time goes on, she also starts writing poems about grief and loss. Some of the first recorded writings about widowhood. And so I have a, a, a book of writings by Christine, so I'll... And these are all translated from the original French. Um, but th some of these are quite... They're quite striking. Um, and they're, they're very, I think, evocative of what she must have been going through in the first few years, in particular after her husband died. So here's a bit from a poem. She says, I'm like a turtle dove without its mate, who turns away from greenery and heads towards aridity. Or like a lamb the wolf attempts to kill, which panics when its shepherd leaves it. Thus I am left in great distress by my lover, which gives me so much pain that I will always weep for his death. Yeah, so it's it's pretty painful stuff. Soon Christine moves on from writing and selling poetry exclusively. And she begins to delve into other topics. So some of her first prose writings are treatises and manuals uh, about things like political leadership and warfare. So a, a very interesting transition to make. She heads into the sort of Conrad Kaiser sort of space. Yes, she very much does. And this is an established and accepted medieval genre. But she has lots of writings about... For instance, how monarchs should lead. Yeah, she has a very interesting approach to this. So it's it would be hard to describe her, um, especially at this stage, as countercultural. She very much does play into the status quo. She doesn't challenge the system. Um, and so in her political writings, we see her start by affirming that monarchs are destined to rule and entitled to rule because they come from noble lineage. So that's how pretty, revolutionary. That's pretty milk toast. But then. She explains that monarchs need to, nevertheless, be reliant on good advice from the right people and behave justly. And interestingly, and rather differently to a lot of her peers who are writing about politics, she makes fewer abstract moral arguments and much more focuses on material outcomes and stresses to rulers that it will come back to bite them if they don't behave the right way. You know, to me, is probably not a coincidence that she's writing these very practical, hands-on guides at a time when she feels threatened by political instability. Mm. So I think you can very much read them as a response to things that are going on in her life. And in the, in the same... Which tells us that she is politicized on a personal level. Yes, absolutely. Because in the same vein, she also writes about warfare and she writes about war tactics, um, a lot of which she adopts from classical sources, but she also has a few philosophical arguments about war and how war should be avoided at all costs, how monarchs should consider uh, whether or not they should go to war. And 
again, she does add a lot of new material to the discussion on this. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting and it's, you know, she relies a lot in her work on classical sources. She's not just relying on Christian theology and morals. Which, to be fair, is we would expect from the time. Which we would expect from the time, but I think it's an important thing that she does as well to assert her status as an educated person and yeah. to remind people that she is literate and educated. Sorry, I've read these books. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're special just because you've read Aristotle. Think again. Exactly. I mean, it's easy, I think, when telling the narrative of her life to talk about this period as her sort of being a conventional, um, conventional writer, but it is worth noting that, like, the fact that she was being a conventional writer as a woman made her profoundly unconventional. Like, we've talked about, we've talked about, um, you know, men, men who've written, you know, books about politics and books about war, people like um, Machiavelli, um, Conrad Kaiser, Giovanni di Fontana, before. And the emphasis there is on men. <laughs> yes. This is not a, a genre that women are engaged in as a, as a rule. It's a very, very good point. And Christine was extremely aware of this. And she was also very aware that her status as a female writer possibly played into some of her success as a writer, because we know in her, from some of her personal correspondences, that she knows she's perceived as a novelty and almost as a bit of a curiosity. And so I think she's also... I imagine acutely aware of how far she can push, she can how, of how much she can rock the boat, mm. and probably in a lot of cases much less than her male peers, because she is relying on selling her works to aristocrats and monarchs in order to support her family, and so she is of course buttering these people up, and she is writing things that appeal to them, and which all of which all of that genre really kind of is exactly yeah. like all of them have this sort of framing device of my lord you are truly the greatest <laughs> of, of all the princes of europe yeah exactly. but to be to join the heights of alexander yeah. and the caesars heed my words exactly it's very much like oh you wouldn't want to spoil the good thing you've got going on exactly only five payments of nine ninety nine to read my book. <laughs> Subscribe to my Substack. <laughs> but um, so by thirteen ninety nine, when Christine's husband has been dead for ten years, she's thirty five at that point. One of her first writings that explicitly addresses gender appears, and this is a really interesting piece. It's a little bit funny. I think it's quite a good lark. And it's called, um, I believe, The Letter from the Love God. This is the God of Love's letter. So it's the framing device here is that this is a letter written by, um, who is the God of Love? Is it Apollo? Oh, it is Cupid. From Cupid, king by the grace of himself, God of lovers, ruling in the shining sky with no one's help, son of the powerful goddess, Venus, Lord of love and all its objects to all our loyal, obedient servants, health, love, and intimacy. 
that horny enough for you? That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I really liked that. Yeah, no, that was amazing. Uh, some people are very, some people I know are very uncomfortable <laughs> right now, and I'm fine with that. Good. No, that was amazing. <laughs> so she continues this letter by saying, We make it publicly known that complaints and piteous accusations have been made before us at our court by all ladies, married and unmarried, noble women, middle-class women, and young girls. All these women have together humbly requested our help, without which they will all be robbed of their honor and deeply shamed. And the above-mentioned ladies complain of the great crimes, the accusations, the slanders, the betrayals, the great outrages, the deceptions, and the many other pains that they receive every day from disloyal men who blame, defame, and deceive them. That's right, ladies. I'm an ally. <laughs> Cupid is such a menace. But doesn't that kind of strike you right away? That's not something you would necessarily expect to hear from someone in the Middle Ages. No, I mean, it's very much straightforwardly sort of anti-men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a letter that outlines Christine's beef with what I can only describe as medieval pickup artists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, can you believe these people? <laughs> Pretending that there were pickup artists in the Middle Ages. Everyone just got married at 15 and had 10 kids and died at age 16. As we should. <laughs> That's the timeline I'm working towards. <laughs> listen, listen. If you want to learn more about why De Pissam is a stuck-up bitch and why pickup culture is actually cool, subscribe to my Substack. You'll get the best deals on my dick supplements. <laughs> All right, guys. Let's get back to it. I don't know how much more of this I can take. It's really nauseating. Like, why don't you just accept your lot in life, ladies? Subscribe to my How to Seduce Christian Men YouTube channel to learn more tips and tricks for making him think you're the most pious slut in all of South Mississippi. <laughs> and so this is a really interesting piece of writing. Flip this back open again. Um... Because it does deal with the idea of female nature. And more specifically, Christine talks about the ideas that men have of women, that they're weak and that they're foolish and silly and uh, morally worse, that they're easily given to temptation. And first of all, she refutes these ideas. She says that they're not true at all. She says of male writers, and if anyone says that we should believe these books which were written by men of great renown and wisdom who would not have deigned to lie, books which prove women's evil nature, I answer that those who wrote those things in their books were, in their lives, only interested in deceiving women. They could never possess enough women. Every day they wanted new ones without even being loyal to the most beautiful. So, you know, she's basically... Calling them, I don't know, angry incels. Man whores Man incels yeah. and fumblers of bad bitches. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, she talks about, I mean, she takes everyone down. She takes Ovid down. Um, so, you know, for instance, she says, Ovid said much evil of women, which I consider to be a misdeed. In a book he wrote, which he called Love's Remedies, 
in which he accused them of dishonorable, filthy, uncouth behavior. I deny that they possess such vices, and I stand ready to do battle on this issue with anyone who wants to throw down the gauntlet. Not only does she refute these ideas of women, she also she kind of flip-flops back and forth into actually agreeing with them. She has a very interesting type of argument that she brings up a few times in this piece that I think is really clever, where she says, anyways, since women are apparently so easy to deceive and so foolish, why is it that men are so obsessed with seducing us? <laughs> if it was really that easy, why won't they shut up about it? Oh my it? god, tell me about it. So she says, <laughs> And if they are fragile and frivolous and unstable, simpleton and totally naive, just as men say that women are, why do the men who preach find the need to invest themselves with caution? Oh, and why do those women not subject to them quickly without the aid of art or skills to capture them? Because if a castle is already taken, meaningless will be war. <whistles> bada bing, bada boom. By your logic defense, fucking smoked. Yes. No, exactly. And again, very interesting piece. Um, I, I guess I shouldn't say that she that she leads into or agrees with um, those stereotypes, but she does she very much... She uses them for rhetorical purposes. She very much, I would say, in this piece, nevertheless, she definitely qualifies sort of what she perceives as being good women versus bad women. And so she does, you know, specify that there are unvirtuous women who are things like unchaste and... Um, and immoral, but I think what's particularly interesting is that she basically has the same moral standards for men and women. So she essentially is saying everyone should treat each other the same. And it's it's actually a surprisingly equitable approach to morality. Well, I think that I I I I don't think we should be surprised that she kind of has the same she starts from the same place in terms of a worldview as the people that she's criticizing because she didn't like magically apparate out of thin air. She's still a person who lived in the society that she did. And I think that it's very easy when we're kind of backwards projecting things like concept, like feminism to people like Christine de Pizan. We just, we want them to be like 21st century woke. Yeah. And there, I mean, if Christine de Pizan lived today with the values that she did, we would see her as a very conservative person. Absolutely. Because the, you know, because the moral sort of meridian that we live to now is not what it was back then. Absolutely. But that doesn't dilute the things that are revolutionary about her in her context. Yes. Yes, I 100% agree and I think it's also clear within the context of her life that a lot of her unhappiness came from being deprived of social structures. Um, so it came from losing her husband and from threats to the stability of the monarchy. And these were the things that provided for Christine. And in general, her whole life, you know, was basically a case study of how difficult it was to make it on your own as a woman in the Middle Ages. And I think it's not surprising that she should lean into that women should strive to be good wives and good mothers and cling on to structures of stability, because that's how they'll be provided for. Mm. 
Well, she's, you know, she's, she's working with what she's got. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, I think it's, it's interesting as well, this idea of medieval pickup culture and pickup <laughs> artists, because at first it might sound a bit surprising, you know, that this could be something that exists, but... Well, I no, because nobody had extramarital sex <laughs> and um, nobody, like, did... No, nobody did anything against Christian virtue. Exactly. Exactly. Give me a break. <laughs> exactly. Um, because over the next few years of her life, in the early 15th century, Christine was embroiled in a very fierce debate in the French literary world about a poem. A poem we've talked about before on the show. Yes, a poem which Christine loathed. She wanted it burned and banned. Well, look, there's lo there's lots of poems that I hate. Yeah. It must be this must be a normal poem that doesn't have any kind of weird sexual undertones. Exactly. Or overtones. Exactly. So it's yeah, a, a fascinating poem because it's essentially a story of seduction told through the allegory of a man picking a flower. Uh, it's a literal deflowering this. and it uses all sorts of descriptions of force it belittles women it dehumanizes them it, it uses a lot of what malcolm tucker would call violent sexual imagery Le yeah absolutely because you know it has imagery of men having to fight their way into a castle that's what seduction is like if you find yourself in the course of that activity trying to metaphorically fight your way into a castle that might be a skill issue <laughs> so yeah it's 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 pretty filthy stuff and christine wrote a lot of letters to people who supported it she was absolutely embroiled in this debate and she was ridiculed during the whole thing of course for her gender there were some people who supported her in disliking the poem, although most of these people were church leaders who just didn't like the mm. idea that it could be pro-sex, Christine's central point in this argument um, was that it was anti-woman. And she lists many, many examples of times in her life when she's seen women be mistreated by men who have basically had sex with them and then discarded them. And that this is catastrophic for a woman in the Middle Ages because there it's is there's, great for a woman now. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's absolutely no place for a, a woman who has extramarital sex and then has a child in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's I don't think we need to get into how that would lead to you being perceived. This is, I think, why for Christine she wanted women to see a stable, loving marriage and a family is something aspirational because it was a, a means of protection from this culture. Well, she, as as we sort of alluded to before, she is aware of the precarity that women are, that especially, you know, middle class and working class women experience just trying to exist in, in, in the world. Yeah. Like you don't, if you don't have like the stability of an aristocratic background, you are absolutely in the face of destitution and i think i think that you know that is that 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 has to be part of the mix when you're trying to understand the perspective that she's coming from absolutely absolutely and she was yeah 
scathing about this poem and scathing about its author and scathing about male authors in general, not just Ovid, but all sorts of male authors. Steady on, I'm a male author. <laughs> but not the good male authors. She does often in her writings step back and say, of course, I don't mean women who are sluts. And of course, <laughs> and of course I Sorry. don't... And of course I don't mean men who are nice. <laughs> not... Hashtag not all men. So I think she's very aware she needs to make those concessions. Um, yeah. Arms, gentlemen, we strike for a So I could probably spend the next 12 to 14 hours talking about various pieces of Christine de Fazan writing. And I'm sure she will show up again, so you don't have to. She absolutely will. Um, but I will spare you guys the bloody details, the boring details, and the gory details. That's it. Um, and I will cut to the chase and talk about probably Christine's most famous work. This one came out in 1405, and it was, I think, heavily influenced by her writings and debates over the romance of the rose. So this book is called The Book of the City of Ladies. Which, Sounds like a city I need to get to. <laughs> well, unfortunately, no boys allowed. Christine, by the time she wrote this book, was in her late 30s or early 40s, pretty well established as a writer. She'd been selling her works to aristocrats and monarchs for quite some time. And I think she was seen and respected as an authority, or at least um, and as, a, as an educated person. So interestingly, this book starts with... An interesting persona of Christine's where she describes how downtrodden and sad she is reading a book, yet another book by a man making fun of women. And she begins to fall into despair and she starts to wonder if women are actually horrible, if she's horrible because she's a woman, if she should just give up. And then in a sort of Dickensian flash of light, three figures appear to Christine. These are personifications of three virtues. So these are the ladies reason, rectitude, and justice. And they inform Christine that they're here to help her out with a mission. They are going to build the city of ladies. And so this isn't just going to be any city, but rather a rhetorical city. Rhetorical in the sense that... Oh, that's this the is... worst kind of city. <laughs> a city that's not real. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a city where the bricks and the mortar and the foundation are made out of words. So it's built of arguments made to protect women from misogynistic onslaught they've been facing for so long. And so Lady... Reason instructs Christine to pick up the, the trowel of her intelligence and walk out into the field of letters to begin clearing away earth for their task. So it's a, a pretty fun setup. Goes pretty hard. Yeah. And so over the course of this book, which is told in three parts, they mention about 200 women in total as examples of female excellence, you could say, and female virtue. So it starts with pagan women and pre-Christian women, um, moves on to early Christian female saints, and goes through women from the Old Testament, women from the New Testament, basically every example Christine can think of, of a virtuous lady. And this is really extremely impressive because it's also showcasing this incredible knowledge that she has 
of classical history and of theology. And she, she brings women from, from far and wide into her city. And over the course of this book, she basically takes arguments against women one by one and picks them apart and finds counterexamples. And above all, her goal is to undermine the idea that female nature is inherently bad. I mean, I made the, I made a slightly facetious comparison to Machiavelli earlier, but I think there's there's an argument to be made, to be made that just as the just as Machiavelli's work, particularly The Prince, is kind of this this kind of rhetorical argument for Italian nationalism. This is kind of this 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 is doing that for women. It's the same structure using using history rhetorically in order to prove a point. And so I think that I think that she kind of this places her very much in a sort of as part of a canon, but as a as a part of the canon that's often she she is often sort of ignored as part of that canon. But yes. She's she she is contributing to this this kind of genre. I think so, and I think it's really it's astonishing to me that she is ignored so much because she's very subversive in some of the things that she brings up. So she really goes right down to the fundamentals and challenges not just people's perceptions of women, but people's perceptions of what is good and what is bad in the first place. So for instance, even though she says that women aren't less, for instance, morally resolute or morally sound than men, she looks at virtues that are typically attributed to women or traits that are typically attributed to women like sensitivity um, and emotional intelligence, um, so to speak. And she actually underlines why these are good things and why these are beneficial traits, not just for women, but for society as a whole. So very interesting um, in that regard. And she even goes all the way back to the start and tackles this idea of Eve as the first sinner. So she discusses the idea that Eve is inferior because she was made out of Adam's rib. And she flips that on its side and says, well, if Eve was made out of Adam's rib, Adam was made out of dirt. So like, which one of, the, <laughs> which one of those are worse? She says, for God has configured the woman nobly and she was created out of a very noble matter, not out of the mud, but out of the very back of the man whose body already existed. The woman is the sum of him, the noblest of all things on the surface of the earth. I mean, isn't that great? That would go so hard on uh, 14th century Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of almost a feminist history or a women's history, which I think is really interesting because women's history wasn't really seen as a discipline basically until second wave feminism in the mid 20th century. So we are a whole seven. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we are a whole 600 years early. Yes. Yes, we are. And she even goes so far as to when when she's, you know, perhaps confronted with historical stories of women who behaved less than virtuously, she basically rewrites the narrative on these women and she says, "Well, actually that's not what happened." So, you know how nowadays 
you get books, for instance, like Circe by Madeline Miller, or yes. one about 1984, about the female main character in that one that, you know, the whole idea is to retell these stories from the woman's point of view in a transformative feminist way. Anyways, here's something from The City of Ladies. Christine writes, similarly, Medusa, or Gorgon, was celebrated for her outstanding beauty. She was a daughter of the very wealthy king whose large kingdom was surrounded by sea. This Medusa was of such striking beauty that not only did she surpass all other women, which was an amazing and supernatural thing, <laughs> but she also attracted to herself, because of her pleasing appearance, every mortal creature upon whom she looked, so that she seemed to make people immovable. For this reason, the fable claimed that they had turned to stone. So she's, I mean, I think this is obviously, again, not part of a canon or a tradition that exists in the modern day. This is separate from what those women are doing, you know. But it is incredible that she is still basically doing the exact same thing that's perceived as transformative and feminist um, nowadays. And she was doing that 600 years ago. And very few people did that in the interim. I think that a more maybe a more useful or maybe a more holistic comparison is to say that this is she's kind of a bit like revisionist historian. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Where you're trying to reinsert women into the um into these existing sort of canonical stories. Yes, yes, I think that's that's a good point. I think it's it's certainly not outside the scope of what was done in medieval history writing. Um you know, I mean, we just talked about people making up histories of, of <laughs> yeah. monarchs, but I think to to focus on women and to do this with the intention of reframing female villains is very, very interesting. Um, so, yeah, a, a fascinating work by all accounts. Again, she goes through hundreds of women, um, and you can tell it's there's definitely a, a personal element as well. So she brings in Italian and French women and her patron saint, Saint Christine. And she also seems to have a thing for the Amazons. She talks about the Who Amazons doesn't? a lot and how cool they are. Um, and some of her, her writings as well in this book are incredibly evocative because she brings up things like infidelity and in particular domestic violence is something she brings up over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, really fascinating how she has these very carefully constructed, very rhetorical arguments about, you know, abstract moral concepts. But sometimes she, it feels like she kind of, she kind of snaps almost. Almost, her, her anger feels sort of palpable through the writing. So here's a, a page. Um, here's, here's a passage, another passage. This one's about domestic violence. And, and I've got an example of writing from the Romance of the Rose as well, which has um, a bit on the nature of women. So in the Romance of the Rose, this is a verse translation. It says, Man's life is filled with miseries, troubles and ills on every side, induced by the insensate pride of women, their demands and plaints, such trouble cause as life attains, with miseries manifold alack, hard hath he who striveth back to call them to a decent sense of modesty and reverence. So that's male writers on women. Women, am I right? Can't live with them, can't live without them. Am I right, boys? Yeah, brother. Let me get a beer. <laughs> so here's Christine on men. 
How many women are there actually, dear friend, and you yourself know, who because of their husbands' harshness spend their weary lives in the bond of marriage in greater suffering than if they were slaves among the Saracens? My God, how many harsh beatings, without cause and without reason, how many injuries, how many cruelties, insults, humiliations, and outrages have so many upright women suffered, none of whom cried out for help? And consider all the women who die of hunger and grief with a home full of children, while their husbands carouse dissolutely or go on binges in every tavern all over town, and still the poor women are beaten by their husbands when they return, and that is their supper. What do you say to that? Am I lying? You know, despite the fact that she was a wonderfully clever woman and she had a lot of really clever turns of phrase, she was very fond of writing to her male detractors and saying things like, well, I'm just a little woman. How could you possibly argue with me? <laughs> and things like that. Um, and really undermining herself in order to, to undermine her opponents. She had a, a great quote where a man has said that it's unnatural and uncommon for a woman to be educated. And she writes back, if it's bad for me to be educated because it's so uncommon, it's worse for a man to be so stupid because it is so common. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> which I love. Um, but anyways, and and um, yeah, so and I think these, this idea of undermining herself comes up over and over again. So for instance, in one letter, she wrote to one of her detractors, I'm not a logician, and then says, but and follows it with uh, sort of a lengthy diatribe on morals and logic. Yeah, I really like this one. She says, I do not know why you attack me so much more than others. It is hardly honorable to attack the weakest party. In, in order to eradicate everything, you attack me, who is nothing but the voice of a little grasshopper. Oh, I'm just a small, I'm just a uwu small being. Well, she's literally doing the, when you're mean to me, this is who you're being mean to. Yes. <laughs> she would have <laughs> loved Twitter. Yeah. She would have just gotten into flame wars with people No, for she absolutely weeks. would have, yeah. She would she would happily die mad yeah yeah no it's um it's amazing and so yeah she's the basically first e girl <laughs> maybe maybe um <laughs> and so and so yeah and above all i think you can tell that christine was someone who who knew other women well and who had female companionship throughout her life because she also talks about women who she knows personally she talks about, for instance, women who she knows who are illuminators of manuscripts, which is quite interesting mm. because she uh, because it also lets us know that Christine, unlike a lot of medieval writers, was very involved with her manuscript production and is actually quite charming in different versions of manuscripts um, of her works, which have not been illuminated, of course, by her. You see differences in how certain characters are drawn, how the artists have interpreted it, but in all of these manuscripts, Christine looks the same. And mm. I think we can only assume from that that the people who are making these books knew her and were familiar with her. And so, yeah, she was an, an incredibly industrious, incredibly accomplished woman of her time who nevertheless came out with some, some really interesting writings and I think put into voice what probably a lot of women experienced. I mean, I think the, one of the other interesting things about 
Christine is that she was very clearly, especially in the sort of introduction to the city of women, I think you get a very clear sense that she sees herself as being the first person to kind of articulate this stuff. And I think that she absolutely sees herself as an actor in history. Like she's, and she's clearly tormented by that. It's, it's the only thing to be the first or last of anything. Yeah, I completely agree. She has a really interesting dream poem that she writes that's called The Book of the Mutation of Fortune. And in this poem, she's actually transformed by the Lady Fortune into a man. In fact, into the spitting image of her father and lives out the rest of her life as a man for some reasons that we won't get into. But I think it's quite, to me, emblematic of how she perceived herself in that I think... She was grateful, you know, for her success, and she was fe willing to defend herself and women very fiercely. But I think she did see herself as the exception, and I think that her life wasn't necessarily something that she wanted for other women. No. But I think that the... The, the, the sort of her, her awareness of her own singularity is... It brings us on to, I think, a broader point, which is... You know, she's obviously this badass, incredibly interesting person. But you do, when you're reading about her, when you read how revolutionary her ideas are, you have to think, well, why her? Why this person at this moment in this place? And I have a, I have a working theory about this. So Christine de Pizan was a product of a very specific social class, the bourgeois Italian Republican elite who were and who were a deeply invested in the idea of learning for its own sake, which meant that in many cases they educated, they made sure that their children were educated, including their women, which her father absolutely did. And B, they were, it meant that relatively non-aristocratic people were exposed to political power, which she would have been from a very young age. The structures of the Venetian Republic um, enabled her father to establish himself as part of the Venetian court and then move on to France. What that means is that she is close to power for almost her entire life and therefore more acutely aware of the... Um, the ways in which she's denied it. Second point, um, she is obviously hugely, 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 the fact, that she, the fact that she is hugely learned means that she is equipped with the um, rhetorical tools to, um, to critique the society in which she lives, which women before her who didn't have access to that to that learning wouldn't necessarily have been able to have. She was able to articulate ideas that were more resonant, that, that resonated with people because she had an education. And the third thing that made her unique, I think, is precarity, is that she was throughout her life acutely aware of the fact that she was vulnerable and she could not because she wasn't part of the core aristocratic elite she, if she was vulnerable she couldn't then fall back on traditional modes of sort of traditional social structures to protect herself as a result i would say that the reason why christine de pizan is the first 
quote-unquote feminist in this working definition that we have is because of the the exact same social forces that produce the Italian Renaissance. It's the it's the 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 humanist ethos of republicanism combined with which 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 prioritizes learning, but also the rise of people who are educated professionals who are because they're engaged in wage labor also extremely vulnerable. Absolutely, absolutely. It's social instability both in the sense of the like, sort of the the chaotic capitalist world of um of uh, late medieval Italy from which her family comes and then the uh, dynastic chaos of France in the same period that opens the door for somebody like that. I Absolutely. I think it's especially significant because although she was arguably the first feminist and certainly the first known a lot of things professional female writer you know for instance she definitely wasn't the last of these things she was followed pretty quickly by um, other professional middle class learned women female scholars well it's like virginia it's like virginia wolf says that the the first feminist scholars are the learned daughters of wealthy men yeah Exactly, exactly. And although I think it was a while, you know, centuries even after Christine before, her ideas were revisited in a manner that people, you know, where people wanted to, to build upon them in a feminist way, she certainly was influential and her books were translated and reprinted in her time and in the centuries following. Um, one of her books was one of the first books printed by William Caxton in England which is pretty cool. Um, so, so yeah, I, it's absolutely reflective of, of broader social currents. And as I said before, Christine was also aware of what the social currents and the social trends were because she needed them to survive. And that was a big shaping force in her, her work as well. I have one final question for you about Christine before before he, we leave her. What do you think she would have made of the Barbie movie? <laughs> you know, as someone who doesn't like the Barbie movie all that much... You liked it fine when we saw it. I think... <laughs> I think she would have absolutely loved it. <laughs> because it has a framing device. <laughs> it takes place in a city of women. Yeah. There's a big tirade about how women are treated by men. It affirms, you know, differences between the two genders. Yeah, I think I think she would have. I think she would have recognized the Kens. Yes. For sure. Yes, definitely. I think she would have loathed the Kens. I think she would have probably hated Ryan Gosling. Well, he's the he's the sort of he's he's exactly what she thinks all her sort of male critics are deep down. This fairly pathetic guy who is just obsessed with women. I think she would have identified really strongly with the America Ferrera. Yeah, I think she would have been like, "That's literally me." So look, if um if if I if we have the opportunity to sort of do a 
do a Vincent and the Doctor kind of situation where we take uh, we take Christina Pizan out of the 14th century and take her to the 21st century to see how society has changed. I would take her to uh, July 2023 <laughs> and buy her a ticket to Barbie. Yeah, I think the main maybe thing... with French subtitles. The main thing you want to be aware of is that don't let her go into Oppenheimer. Because <laughs> her brain, you know, like we made we made an episode dismantling the idea that a Dorito would kill a medieval peasant. But I think sitting through all of Oppenheimer would absolutely explode the brain of someone from the 15th century. <laughs> necessarily have a happy ending later on in her life she goes to live with one of her daughters in a convent and she becomes more withdrawn she writes lamentations about the state of france and the state of the french monarchy that's what french people love to do yes absolutely she's first and foremost a french nationalist in a lot of her work although she also identifies really strongly with italy and uh, she has a bit where she writes uh, an apostrophe or a, a sort of address to Athena, and she refers to her and Athena as both being Italian ladies, <laughs> which I love. Italian ladies, gotta love them. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, she she grows, yeah, a more more distant and less productive over the course of her life, and more sad about France, but. A couple years before she dies, she writes one last work, and this is an exaltation of joy about the existence of Joan of Arc, who has just appeared on the scene and who is leading the French into victory against the English. And Christine certainly dies, although we don't exactly know how, before Joan is captured and executed, and it makes me happy to think that that was, you know... The note that she ended things on. Joy for this woman who had just appeared and who, you know. Maybe things are changing. Yeah, exactly. That is going to just about do us. I know, I have more to say. Yeah, I know <laughs> wait, you do. Wait, no, yeah. Let's, let's wrap um, it up. I need to go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm keep... For those who aren't in the room with us, I have Aaron tied to a chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... You know where to find us. I am at Aaron P. Tappers on Twitter and Aaron on uh, on Blue Sky. I'm at Weird Medieval on Twitter and um, at Olivia underscore underscore MS is my personal Twitter. Follow me. Find me. Call me. Beep me if you want to reach me. And very excitingly, speaking of social media, there is now a Weird Medieval Guys Discord channel. We're expanding. Join the Discord yeah, no this this has been this has been a very fun episode, and it was an eye opening episode for me as a slovenly man uh, to get lectured at by by a by an intellectual woman. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we will see you next time. I'm fine.
<laughs> I'm masculine. Were you moved to tears by the tragic story of Christine de Pizan's life? No. No. <laughs> I was just crying because of all the feminism. It was an allergic reaction. That's good, because for a second, I thought you were being gay. I'm not gay. <laughs> Listen, I think, we sh- I, I think we should just call it there, all right? This was a very cringe podcast, and it was bad. Buy my boner pills. Yeah, I've heard enough feminist tripe from those clowns. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.